to the first episode of a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. I'm W. Keith Timms, writer and podcaster, creator of the Book of Constellations. In this show, I listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about the show, their methods, struggles, and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of The Dragoning. Messenger Theater Company presents The Dragoning. The Dragoning is a work of speculative fiction created by Emily Rainbow Davis. In The Dragoning, a city is shaken by the transformations of women into dragons who consume and immolate men. A tourist from afar tries to understand what a guy is supposed to do when any woman could literally eat you for lunch. Davis is artistic director of the Messenger Theatre Company in New York, through which she created the show. Season 2 of The Dragoning is scheduled to release on July 4th of this year. The Dragoning is told in second person, with the audience standing in for the silent male tourist who has come to the dragon-afflicted city. The first episode introduces us to cab driver Ray, who shares some advice for survival. In the second, we meet three different people, each with their own angle on the unexplained phenomena. I spoke to Emily remotely from her home in New York. Tell me a little bit about yourself as an artist and a creative person. I started out as a classical actor. I spent most of my beginnings of my career in Shakespeare companies, acting and such, and started writing kind of on off times from performing, um, which led to directing, which led to starting a theater company. And that's led in you know many different directions. I got a degree in liberal arts because I was quite high-minded and thought, I must have something to act about. Uh, so I, I felt like I really needed to like learn all the things. Yeah. Were you an artsy kid? Oh, so artsy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was an actor, I think, from preschool. I met some, my two of my preschool teachers were actors, and I thought they were the coolest people in the whole world. So, you know, I put on a lot of productions of The Three Billy Goats, Gruff, and did some really excellent tight rope walking in the first grade circus. And, you know, I, I'm definitely, I think, born to the arts. I noticed you also do music. I do. Yeah. I've always sung and my family are all musical. For a while I was in musical theater or I would get my Shakespeare gigs because I could sing, like they needed someone to sing the song in the, in the Shakespeare show. So when I was in high school, I started to learn guitar. There's just always kind of music around in life for me. What is a life without music? Like, I can't even imagine it. You've done recordings of lullabies? I have, right? yeah. Well, a friend of mine who lived in Iowa and I live in New York and she was like, oh, I wish you were here so you could sing my kid to sleep. And I was like, well, hmm. uh, why don't I record some stuff for you? So I ended up writing a lullaby for her son. And then I asked her, like, what are the songs? If I were there, what would you like for me to sing? And so she gave me some ideas and I ended up recording, it was a short album, maybe six or seven songs. And then as time has gone by, you know, I had those six or seven songs and every new friend who would have a baby would either get a lullaby written for their child or at least get the album. You said you formed your own theater company. That's the Messenger Theater Company. Tell me about that. 
I started it with a friend from college who is a visual artist, and she read a play that I'd written and was like, oh, we should do this. Uh, She was like, I'll make the puppets and the masks and you direct it and we'll just do it. In doing that, we pulled another friend in who was an aspiring film producer at the time and were like, hey, you're interested in producing. Maybe you want to join us. So the three of us got together and sort of lovingly put on this play, Persephone. 20 years ago. <laughs> 20 years ago. And, yeah. <laughs> and you just kept on making stuff after that. Yeah. Yeah. Once once you, once you get a taste for it, it's hard to stop. I feel like one of my reasons to do my own work is I gave that play to a reading series. I was like, oh, no, they have failed to understand what I'm trying to do <laughs> so deeply that I felt like, well, obviously, I guess I just need to do it myself. Why Messenger Theater Company? Why did you choose that name? My colleagues asked me, like, well, well, what were your, some of your favorite parts that you've played? I just was coming off a Shakespeare tour where we were doing three plays in rep. And I was like, I played nine characters, but my favorite one was the messenger <laughs> in Henry the <laughs> Fourth, part one. There was something about that idea of a person who is there to change something. They come in, <laughs> they deliver some news or share some information that shifts the entire balance of whatever's happening in the scene. They're very often a catalyst for change, which I find very inspiring. But also, I think I love the openness. Like, you never know much about a messenger that comes in. They Mm. just come in. They're kind of an open book. They're blank slate. You can kind of do what you want as a performer. Talk to me about the mission of Messenger Theater Company. We are dedicated to a kind of blend of classical and contemporary ideas, pulling apart classical mythological ideas, archetypal structures, and either like infusing those into a kind of modern sensibility or the other way around. If we're doing a modern story, there's usually some kind of classical influence or uh, exploration or a mythological turn. What attracts you to that combination? I think it's probably magic. I like a world where things can happen in a magical way, that there is something bigger than the small details of our lives. I like the size of of mythological ideas. I love messing around with gods and goddesses, creatures. I like the size of that. I want to get out of the mundane and look at something that has some sense of wonder in it. Myths appeal to me too. Myths that endure seem to cover the same kind of themes that stick with us as human beings over the years. Yeah. Now, obviously, there are cultural differences, and obviously the, the societies that create the myths kind of bake their own ideas into it. But yeah. at the same time, the themes themselves keep on popping back up. To me, that gives it a kind of thematic resonance. I was obsessed for a little while with a woman called Jean Houston, who was interested in in talking about mythology. I think this is something she said, but something about a myth is something that is always happening. It's just like a structure in the world. It's a true thing that isn't true. <laughs> a true thing that isn't real. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Dragons are certainly mythological, right? Yes, they are. Tell me about the dragoning in your own words. Um, it's a show about women who turn into dragons, but it's also, I think, really about a world where fear is kind of turned upside down. 
what it's like to be in a place where women no longer fear men and men fear women. I feel like it's a conversation maybe between fear and rage. <laughs> yeah. That there is a, an upending of both of those experiences and how they relate to each other and what the world might be like if things were different. Yeah. The premise is that in major American city, women have been turning into dragons when they have been harassed or bothered or attacked by men and in their rage have been consuming or burning these men. More and more women have become dragons as time goes on. Yeah. Uh, and as such, it has become less and less safe for men on right. the street. So what made you want to tell this story? It started as a blog post in response to Brett Kavanaugh hearings, which filled me mm. with incredible rage. I wrote about my own experience of walking around New York City and feeling like I could do tremendous damage that I, I, I've never experienced that kind of rage before. I've been very mm. angry about things, but certainly never have I felt like, yeah, I could kill somebody. Like I'm, yeah. I was so furious and I didn't feel like it. I didn't feel like that was a, a logical feeling. It, I didn't sure. like actively, <laughs> but I, but right. I could look at someone, you know, I have a vivid memory of sitting next to this guy came and sat at my table in a cafe. And I was like, if I had the ability, I would eat him. I would just, <laughs> I would just eat him right up. There was just something so kind of visceral and and powerful and in that feeling, but it was also really kind of scary. Like I don't, I, I didn't. It was weird to walk around and be like, why isn't anyone afraid of me? I'm so dangerous right now. Mm, <laughs> and yeah. I think it was that impulse of feeling like, why, why is no one, why is no one afraid? They should be afraid. I'm really, I'm really volatile. I don't know, maybe six months later, I was walking down the street and suddenly I heard the voice of one of the characters from this. And they were just sort of speaking from a world where there were a lot of us dragons who felt furious and dangerous. And that voice kind of gave me a monologue and I didn't yeah. know what it was. I just wrote it down, but I just kind of kept following the line of that. And eventually it became the dragoning. So for context, uh, the Kavanaugh hearings were Brett Kavanaugh was nominated to the Supreme Court and Christine Blasey Ford came forward with allegations that he had assaulted her back in college at a party. Kavanaugh denied the act and ultimately, he became confirmed to the Supreme Court. What is it in particular about that that enraged you? I'm not sure it was the the precursor to the hearings so much as the actual hearings and the way the whole organization kind of did what it feels like it's designed to do, which is to support this guy. Mm -hmm. The way her truth was so insignificant to so many people. He had a whole world of people who were like, oh, that's no big deal. <laughs> yeah, and it right. what didn't even happen. What a, like there was just like the, the way it's so viscerally disgusting. And then to yeah. have the whole machine come in and say, oh, this is fine. This is fine. It's not a big deal. It was more the machine than him specifically. Yeah. In your story, The Dragoning, there is this great reversal, 
uh, women who are harassed or wolf whistled at, or uh, even, you know, raped or attacked there. Um, some of them begin turning into dragons and utterly destroying their attackers. Those things I think are the, often the, the trigger that, that turn these particular women yes. into dragons, but also it can be something quite small, a little tiny something that just triggers the rage response which is not to say they haven't experienced all those things earlier on in their lives. And, sure. But it, I guess I want to be clear that the trigger for the, uh, let's call it a disease, I don't know, the trigger for transforming into to dragonhood is not necessarily assault or harassment. or Right. And you uh, make a point in that in the, actually in, in the first episode where the cab driver, Ray, he talks about how it seemed like the first attacks were responses to these very violent attacks on women. But later on, it just became something like, you know, you, you're talking too loud on the phone. Funny time to be alive, man, I'll tell you. You know, they've got these people collecting stories from the dragons themselves. Ah, and the reasons for why they're eating someone or setting them on fire. And I mean, I just tell you, it's chilling. Have you seen those? Oh, oh it's, it, it's such little stuff. It's things like... Uh, Taking up too much space on the elevator, interrupting at a meeting, talking too loudly on the phone. I mean, in the beginning, we thought that might be like vengeance dragons. They ate a lot of rapists and wife beaters and such. But, but it's not just rapists and murderers anymore. Talking too loudly on the phone, why? If I ate everyone who talked too loudly on the phone, I wouldn't have any customers, would I? I mean, I exaggerate, but, you know, I come to think of it, I mean, I understand the impulse to eat a loud talker. <laughs> right. And, and and so I think a lot of audience members might kind of go, yeah, well, these, you know, these attackers, these harassers, these rapists, they kind of got what's coming to them. But then you, you actually kind of make it a point to say that, it, no, it's it's it can be anything that's even sort of a mildly annoying response very small slight so i guess my question is why did you want to make sure that was highlighted in the story in a way that was my experience when i when i felt the intense rage and i felt like i was a dragon it was like i felt like i had tolerated so much for so long that there came a point where i just nothing was tolerable there's an experience of living in intense patriarchy that might flip a switch where where everyone can become unreasonable I think up until that moment for me, I was still quite concerned about being reasonable and logical and having a measured response and being appropriate. There's something about being unreasonably dangerous that feels important for the threat to be real and actually scary. If we think, oh, only harassers and rapists get killed, then I'm fine. But I feel like I wanted to create a world where you don't know if you're going to be fine, because that's actually the world that most women live in right now, is you don't know. For the women who live in, you know, dangerous partnerships, for example, it could be that they cracked the eggs the wrong way and now they're in the hospital. There's a way where women have, I think, adapted to men's rage in such a it's an unconscious way. We don't even know that we're walking around going like, I hope I don't make a man real mad today, that it, that it isn't logical. It's unreasonable. That is something I wanted for the women who are dragons and the dragoning. They are dangerous and unreasonable, and you can't logic your way out 
of a dangerous situation. Do you think that living in fear like that is a universal female experience? I mean, I can't say anything is universal, universal, but, sure. you know, I, I, I do think it's it's pretty close. You know, there was a, a hashtag that went around after the murders in California. I don't remember exactly the city where the guy shot up a sorority and a bunch of women and then a bunch of men and then himself. A hashtag came out of that experience. Yes, all women. And it was a kind of litany of things that women do or pay attention to, you know, like checking the backseat of the car before you get into it, not getting in an elevator, you check it out before you get it. The list of things that women will do to be safe out in the world is, I think most women experience that sense of right. vigilance, if nothing else. I'm not sure. If, yeah. I'm not sure we'd necessarily everyone i'm not sure everyone would say oh yes i'm afraid but there is a, a hyper vigilance that i think the majority of women experience yeah i mean it's hard not to turn that vigilance into fear when you have to be absolutely on your guard all the time you know yeah um, yeah and and it's true like you said there are women who get harassed or assaulted just for the smallest of things yeah even if it's not giving men what they want like smile at me baby or something like yeah that, you know? exactly yeah so w one of the things i really like that you do in the show is that you take a lot of these safety tips for women that are sort of cultural and maybe unconscious mm -hmm. and you spell them out but you give them to the men right and i think that's really really funny but it's also very thought-provoking you know like men can't go anywhere unescorted for safety's sake. You got to have a woman coming with you. That men learn just when you're around women, you just got to learn to keep your mouth shut or, you know, modulate your voice a little bit. Watch what you say. Right. I think the, the cab driver, Ray, says, I don't get into subway cars with women. It's just not safe. I think as satire, this is brilliant because I think for men, it's very difficult for most of us to appreciate these rules because we don't have to live by them. They're invisible, I think, to, to most men I, and not out of any kind of ill intention. It's just it's not visible. If it's not visible, how, right. how are you to know? If you don't have to be hypervigilant, then you just aren't. <laughs> it's a nice way to live, I imagine. But uh, <laughs> but I don't know what it's like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, and I don't think men do either, which is the problem, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. The other thing that I really like is that not only do you have these rules baked in there, but there's a lot of talk about responsibility. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk about whether the women who become dragons should be held responsible for what they do when they are dragons. Apparently, the women change back after their attack. Yeah. Some of them have been arrested. The, the cab driver talks about how maybe there's a dragon brain, there's a woman brain. And so, you know, they're not in their right minds, uh, which a lot of this sounds to me very familiar in terms of defenses that men use when they are accused of crimes against women. Now, one of the ways to protect yourself if you're with one is to just let yourself be afraid. Like the way to avoid them turning into dragons and eating or inflaming you is to just lean into your fear. Because in their woman forms, they, they, they eat it then. What's not to understand? They eat your fear and that is enough to sate the dragon. The, the woman senses your fear, right? She feels it, smells it, sees it. I don't know. She, she won't transform because she's full. See, she doesn't need lunch because she's already ate. 
Because let me tell you, buddy, once she's a dragon, oh, there's nothing you can do to stop what's about to happen to you. Dragon won't be reasoned with. Dragon doesn't even understand words. It just sees that dumbass that called it forth and eats him. That's it. But if you're afraid, man, that's good. Because scared ones are rarely consumed. And that just to me sounds like exactly what you would hear someone say. Hey, men, men got these needs and they got these <laughs> urges and it's the testosterone and yeah. they can't help it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I think that's just really, that's really sharp. Do you consider this a, a, like a, a fable or a satire? I think I imagine it as kind of speculative fiction. I guess fables have a moral lesson, and I wouldn't say this doesn't have one, but I would also say it's not as cut and dried as that. In the beginning, I feel like there's a level of celebration of like, yeah, everything's different. It's amazing. <laughs> it's so fun. <laughs> and then by the end of the show, I feel like, the world becomes complicated the way a world becomes complicated. So I think a fable may be too simple a structure. But a, a satire, you know, it's interesting because I was just thinking recently about Don Powell as a novelist from like the 30s, 40s, who's one of, amazing, one of my favorites. And she would say that she wrote satire, which I was like, is it really satire? But her definition of satire was like people as they really are, which I thought <laughs> is a very interesting point of view. So, <laughs> so maybe it is satire. I don't know. You're tackling a very serious topic here, but yeah. there's really a lot of funny moments in this. It's kind of where I'm laughing at the same time going, oh my God, this is terrible, but this is also really funny. <laughs> Perfect. Um, right. So my question is why use humor for a very serious topic? Number one, I can't help it. Humor is how I get through a bad day. And I think it's how these characters get through a bad period. Even when serious things are happening, there are moments that are absurd or hilarious. And yeah. for me, I think humor is the grease that gets the, the thing through the experience. It's a little touchy, this subject, for quite a few people. It's just more enjoyable, I think, to swallow a bitter pill <laughs> yeah. when, you, when you can laugh along with it. And maybe it lands in a secret place where you don't even really know that it's landed there. It sneaks in and it'll get you later. What's unusual about the infamous Friday's massacre is the teaming up of the dragons. Almost every other attack has been a single dragon on her own, so the Friday's massacre was highly unusual. You will see when we go in how the place was scorched from top to bottom. The three dragons in question did not seem to know each other. They were all at separate tables, but those three tables happened to be surrounding a table of, uh, for, <clears throat> forgive me the slang, but uh, it was a table full of dude bros. I don't know any other way to say it. From what we understand, they were fresh from some success at work and they were drinking. Apparently, it began with their harassing the waitress, and then a woman at another table suggested that they give it a rest. They not only did not give it a rest, they began to reach out to other tables for support on their right to harass, and in a couple of cases, they found it. And that was when the dragons appeared. Accounts differ about what was said right before, but it's clear that something was said, and all three dragons torched him at once. You have a non-verbal protagonist. 
the various characters in the audio drama are speaking to the listener right. who is a person that has a name, but the person never speaks. Talk to me about your choice there and why you wanted to do it that way. He's at the center of the story, but he's also not at the center of the story. I didn't want the story to be about him. And there's a way where if you actually put him in the story, it becomes a story about a guy who goes to a city where ladies turn into dragons. Mm -hmm. I think the actual story is the city. And he is the conduit for understanding what's going on in the city. And things happen and he is involved and, he, and, and things do happen to him. But I wanted to decenter this guy by having him completely absent. The listener becomes him. The character's name is Brent. And when the listener becomes Brent, you kind of have to ask questions about yourself. It's not you, obviously, but if you're the listener, you're receiving what people are saying to you. And... I feel like I want the listener to ask, well, wait, is Brent a douchebag? Am I a douchebag? (laughs) (laughs) I think the listener has to question themselves a little bit more because they are actively engaging and creating the story. In the second episode, we meet three different characters, Willie, Christina, and Dylan. Willie is an ex-cop who is researching the dragoning and fears that it's going to spread to other cities. Christina is a tour guide who is giving a dragon tour. And then Dylan is the tour bus driver. And each one of them gives a little bit different perspective on the events. Christina seems rather blasé about the whole thing. Dylan is trying to make a little side hustle out of it. We're starting to see how this impacts not just the question of gender and violence, but rather in the way this world might unfold if this really happened, what kind of people would there be and how would they react to it? It has, I think, a video game quality of like, Willie will send you to the tour guide who will leave you with the tour bus driver. I really like what you did with this because you could have had this unspool as a series of monologues, but you're actually leading us into a narrative. Stuff does happen. (laughs) Like it may feel, I think, in the first few episodes, like, oh, this is a lot of exposition. But it's all kind of adding up and coalescing to some action that I think really needs the atmosphere of the world to make it make sense. What do you struggle with? Oh, so many things. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I my my blog and other podcast is called Songs for the Struggling Artist. So it is a, a topic of much conversation. There's a wide range of systemic things I feel like I'm kind of up against and the business sides of things and trying to make caring art in an uncaring world. <laughs> the the indifference of, of being an artist in a world that doesn't really care for the, the whole proposition. Writing is really the way through any anything I'm up against. I feel like my way to, to deal is to pull it apart with a notebook and a pen. I, I do feel like I can handle all of those things better if I understand them more deeply. When you talked about feeling like an artist in a world that doesn't care about art, I kind of feel that too. That takes so much energy and that takes so much out of you. Where do you find the resources to keep writing? I put it down to practice, really, Mm -hmm. and ritual. I fight like hell to make sure that I write every day. I write a lot of garbage because of that. But I Mm -hmm. think my commitment to myself is to show up to the page every day. And sometimes it sucks. How do you measure success? I'm not sure I'm as concerned about success as I once was. I feel like in writing 
grant applications over the years. There is a kind of, you know, how do you measure this? And you you make some stuff up about how you're going to measure success. And, you know, I, n- I never look at those things again after I write them down. And I don't think I truly ever measured success in those ways. And in thinking about it more recently, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced that success is the thing I want to be chasing necessarily, because I will never achieve it. <laughs> and there's a way where, you know, sometimes I'll just define success as like, well, if it's not an abject failure, it's a success. But then I think failure is actually quite interesting. I think an abject mm-hmm. failure is actually, I don't know, maybe it's all my clown training where I just find <laughs> failure to be quite compelling. I think as a culture, we're so like, is this successful or not? Yeah. And and I don't think that there's anything that's quite that clear. Like for me, if I'm still kicking, that is a success. What do you chase if you're not chasing success? Art. What does that look like? I feel like it's trying to set the table for inspiration. Just set the table and hopefully it continues to show up. Mostly what I'm doing is setting the table because, you know, sometimes it, it doesn't show up. Continuing to try and create the conditions for ideas and flow and inspiration to come through. But as uh, we get going, I think there's going to be more demand for safe spaces. You know, just places a man can relax and be sure he stands no chance of being torched or consumed, right? Well, listen. I do go to a bar that sort of accidentally become that. It's not on the official Dragon Tour, but it was one of the first sites. Not the first, obviously, but in the first batch. And all the guys who were there who saw their buddy get gobbled up, well, they kept going to their old spot. And they brought along their other buddies from other places and just sort of organically it it became a place of solidarity and support it's a it's a place where men can go and be comfortable you know just be men you know it's nothing special just a regular sort of bar but it's a special for the guys who go there special for the guys who go there one of the things that makes the dragoning smart is how it inverts gender assumptions in order to illuminate them the satire is poignant and funny But Davis doesn't merely moralize. The sudden epidemic of dragons has ramifications for the larger world, which play out as the story unfolds. You can listen to The Dragoning on most major podcast platforms, or see our show notes for more information. The first episode of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All the opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them, and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. If you want more information, want to sign up for our newsletter, or if you're an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, visit our webpage at thefirstepisodeof.com. If you like down-to-earth sci-fi audio drama, check out my show, The Book of Constellations, wherever you get your podcasts. Keep telling stories. It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time. 